Happy Valentine's Day and welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. We're so happy that you decided to spend this evening with us. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton Planning Committee along with Daniel Horan and Alan Culp. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Alan is a faculty in residence at Baldwin Wallace University. Uh, he's also the holder of the university's chair in faith and life. He also serves on the board of trustees of the Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. Please note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. You may post questions in the chat at any time during the, the uh, session this evening. I would like to begin with a prayer by Maya Angelou. Father, Mother God, thank you for your presence during the hard and mean days, for then we have you to lean upon. Thank you for your presence during the bright and sunny days, for then we can share that which we have with those who have less. And thank you for your presence during the holy days, for then we are able to celebrate you and our families and our friends. For those who have no voice, we ask you to speak. For those who feel unworthy, we ask you to pour out your love in waterfalls of tenderness. For those who live in pain, we ask you to bathe them in the river of your healing. For those who are lonely, we ask you to keep them company. For those who are depressed, we ask you to shower upon them the light of hope. Dear Creator, you, the borderless sea of substance, we ask you to give all the world that which we need most. Peace. Amen. And now it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Bob Grip. Bob has devoted his entire professional life to journalism, most of it on the air in television news. And though he is officially retired, he still sometimes um, is invited to come back and do the news. His many accomplishments as a journalist include meeting Pope John Paul II at the Vatican for a 1988 documentary and reporting live from war-ravaged Kuwait in 1993. He established a weekly television series called Fugitive Files and helped law enforcement apprehend more than 700 suspects. He also taught multimedia journalism for 25 years at Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Bob holds a bachelor's degree from Boston College and a master's in journalism from The Ohio State University. He is a former board member, treasurer, and president of the International Thomas Merton Society. He is also the person who edits and posts our Tuesdays with Merton webinars on YouTube, and for that we are very grateful. Here now is Bob Grip speaking on Washington Watches the Monk, Part 2. Bob? Thank you very much. It's, it's a, a great pleasure to be on this side of the camera. I'm usually, as you mentioned, uh, posting these, but I've never starred in one before, so I really appreciate the chance to come on and talk about this. This is something that it's work that I started actually back in the 1980s after having read Merton in, uh, at Boston College my senior year. And I was wondering, considering all the anti-work and anti-war uh, sentiment that uh, Thomas Merton had, I was wondering if the federal government indeed had kept an eye on him considering the paranoia of the, the years surrounding uh, Vietnam War era, for example. So I, uh, I decided to delve into this and actually wrote something that uh, Bob Daggy, the late uh, director of the uh, Thomas Merton Study Center at the time at Bellarmine, uh, published. And so I was delighted to have that chance to, uh, to publish that. But then more recently, other things have come up and I decided to revisit that. So Washington Watches the Monk Part Two was the US federal government monitoring Thomas Merton. I got interested in this once again when I noticed that one of my favorite artists of all time, folk, uh, folk artist, Judy Collins, released an album called Spellbound. And I was looking through the titles and one of them was called Thomas Merton. And it just shocked me. I thought maybe Judy Collins is going to talk about 
Thomas Merton, the peacemaker, uh, Thomas Merton's uh, prayer life, Thomas Merton's devotion to meditation. But no, she didn't go that way at all. Let's take a look at some of the lyrics from her song, Thomas Merton. When his heart led him to the place where he would die, guess you could go along with that, that it was Bangkok, the Dalai Lama welcomed him to Thailand. Well, maybe there was some artistic license taken here, but the Dalai Lama didn't welcome him to Thailand. They were in, in Dharamsala, India. That's where they met. Prayers were prayed and joy was spread and hearts were filled with calm. But in the afternoon, Thomas Merton's life was gone. Thomas Merton, of course, didn't die immediately after meeting the Dalai Lama, but continues. The story was, and I started to get a little wary at this, was that he had died stepping from the bath, shocked by the electricity that lay there in his path as if that were somehow waiting for him. In holy robes, the deed was done as the stars were shining bright. Years went by and lies were told, would the truth not come to light? And it goes on to say in the song, after he was buried upon his death concealed, the evidence of bullet holes finally was revealed. There was no autopsy done on Thomas Merton. Maybe there should have been. There wasn't. And this all this theme seems to come from a book that came out in 2018 called The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton and Investigation. And it appeared the theme of the song came right from, from this particular book. So I wanted to know, was Washington actually watching Merton? Yes, maybe. No. Or yes and no. Hopefully by the end of this presentation, you'll have a better idea of which of those three options is, happens to be the case. This all involved using Freedom of Information Act requests. And as, as was mentioned, I've mentioned, I've worked in journalism since 1975, actively full time. Um, and I, I filed Freedom of Information requests back in the 1980s to find out more about Thomas Merton and the federal government. I'm not a theologian. I did study Boston uh, theology in Boston College, but I can't claim to be a theologian, but I have worked my whole life in journalism. So I use the Freedom of Information Act to find out more. Now keep in mind when you do this, those of you who may have done this already, there is no central clearinghouse for government documents. You just can't write to Washington DC and say, send me all the information you have about, for example, Thomas Merton, it doesn't work that way. You have to ask each individual federal department, for example, the Department of State, the FBI, both in Washington and the FBI local field offices, the CIA, Army Intelligence, the list goes on and on and on and on. You have to be very specific. You either have to give them a time frame or say exactly what you're looking for. Um, you just can't go on a fishing expedition. Now, the agency by law has to respond within 10 days. They do. They abide by the law. Usually, you'll get a postcard back within 10 days saying, thank you for your request. We'll get back to you. So that's how the response went in every one of these cases that I went through every government agency. So Thomas Merton, yes, was an immigrant. He was born in France. So there were files about him. Yes, there were. Let's start with the US State Department. It started at really at the very beginning with this, Thomas Merton's birth certificate from Prague in France, where he was listed as not Thomas, but Tom, just T-O-M, Tom. And as we can see, he was born the 31st of January, Milner Saint, Saint's 14, or Quince, 1915, as Tom Merton, Owen Merton, his father, 27 years old, Ruth Jenkins, without profession, uh, 27 years old. So that was in Thomas Merton's federal US government file. So was this from INS back then, saying that he came to the United States again as Tom Merton on the SS Ansonia. So they were keeping track of him even then back in the 1930s. There was his declaration of intention. And I just loved reading this because he mentions Tom and then he says, 
Tom is full Christian name, given at baptism, but then he apparently decided, no, I'm just going to cross that out. His occupation at the time that this was filled out was cartoonist and writer freelance. His eyes originally wrote blue, then he decided, no, they're really gray. His race was scotch. I didn't know race, scotch was a race, but apparently Merton did, or at least his 23-year-old Merton did. He also put his nationality as British, which might be because he was studying in Great Britain for so a long, such a long time, but he actually, of course, was born in France, so he was French. 1940, let's move ahead to other government files on Thomas Merton. 1940 trip to Cuba. He made an application to re-enter the US and mentioned in many documents, a scar on the palm of his right hand. Now, Michael Mott, if you read in the Seven Mountains of Thomas Merton, talks about this um, considerably. Apparently, this may have stemmed from a drunken party in November 1933 in Cambridge, where there may have been a mock crucifixion. And that may he, Michael Mott sort of led in the direction that this may have resulted in a scar on the palm of Merton's right hand. Uh, Merton never really talked about this directly. He did later talk about his stigmata, but it's interesting that he would bother to mention this on an official um, document. He planned to leave from Miami for a couple of months, Cuba and Mexico. Uh, permission was granted, as you can see on your screen, his, he was a teacher at Columbia University, the Extension English Department. And um, so again, more records of the federal government, Thomas Merton. He was an alien, as the term was used back then. So he was an alien registration, have to file this. He was an unemployed English teacher at the time, lived in Queens, New York. He was five foot nine, weighed 145 pounds. He had blue eyes and also, he was a member of the Third Order of St. Francis, Third Order, um, candidate for a PhD in English at Columbia, was employed as a publicist by Cup and Container Institute, 1936-1938, by Rockefeller Center, and as a teacher at Columbia University. He had no military record. He also had to keep track, or he was letting the government know where he was since he was an alien at the time, 1941, you can see he was listed as 50 Rushmore Avenue, Douglaston, New York. But by 1942, he had moved, of course, you remember uh, that transition between 1941 and 1942. So he was now at Our Lady of Gethsemane, which is where he would stay until he died. Never was a communist. He did sign this saying, I am not now, I have never been a member of or affiliated with any communist action organization. Now, you may remember from Seven Story Mountain, he wrote about being at a party at a home of some Barnard girl featuring bottles of rye and quote, and when I had drunk some of the content, she invited me into a room and signed me up as a member of the Young Communist League. I took the party name Frank Swift. So he may have fudged a little bit here. He did attend one meeting as far as I can find, never returned, thought it was apparently just sort of a bad idea. But it was interesting that he did sign this saying that he had never been affiliated with any communist action organization. His petition for naturalization talks about, yes, he wanted to become a citizen, of course, if necessary, would you be willing to take up arms in defense of the United States? And he said, we'll serve as a non-combatant because he was a priest. So more records. I sent something to the CIA to find out what it knew about Thomas Merton. It's just a guess. It's just one of those things. Sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. This is the response I got in part. Because the CIA is concerned primarily with foreign intelligence matters. We doubt we would have any information responsive to your request that originated with this agency, if indeed we have any pertinent information at all. That was in January and I thought pretty much, 
you know, they're you're going to say, no, we don't have anything. Why are you bothering with us? But six months later, I got this response. Enclosed is a copy of one of the documents located in our searches. It is released to you in its entirety. This copy of Reverend Merton's overseas correspondence was acquired by this agency under an intercept program called HT Lingual. This activity dealt with mail flowing between the United States, between New York City in particular, and the USSR from 1956 until 73 when the program was terminated. Now, it's important to know here that HT Lingual was a secret program of the CIA. They run a lot of secret programs, that's their job. The HT Lingual was actually reviewed by the Commission on the CIA on CIA activities within the United States back in 1975. One of the members of this commission was Ronald Reagan, ironically. While in operation, CIA's domestic mail opening programs were unlawful. They were unlawful. In fact, here is a copy that the CIA sent me of a handwritten envelope that Merton was sending to Boris Pasternak, the famous Russian author. And you can see his attempt at Cyrillic handwriting going to Moscow. So the CIA was kind enough to send me this, which was oh, uh, postmarked Trappist, Kentucky in December 1958. They also sent me what was inside. Now note this, mail cover operations examining and copying envelopes only are legal when carried out in compliance with postal regulations on a limited and selective basis involving matters of national security. Keep in mind this, the New York Mail Intercept did not meet these criteria. So they shouldn't have been doing this anyway. So they shouldn't have been examining and copying envelopes. They did more than that. They copied the uh, letter inside the envelope that Thomas Merton sent to Boris Pasternak. Maybe they were looking for state secrets. I don't know what they were looking for, but they did open it, whether or not they did continue to pass this along to Boris Pasternak in the Soviet Union, I don't know. But what was one of the main topics of this letter from Merton to Boris Pasternak? This is Merton writing. If the question of making Dr. Zhivago into a movie in America should arise and become an issue with you over there, I would strongly advise that you attach no importance to any movie, but rather that you should, if the case arises to make a decision, rather oppose yourself to it. The movies here are quite bad, and I have always firmly resisted any attempt to use one of my books in a film. In fact, Merton later prohibited that use. Well, what about Merton's film advice? He said, certainly a Hollywood production of Dr. Zhivago would do more harm than good in every respect. Dr. Zhivago was, of course, made into a movie in 1965. It won five Oscars, including the best adapted screenplay. And it, to this date, is the eighth top grossing film of all time in the U.S. and Canada. So I don't know if Boris Pasternak had any say in the matter because the Soviet Union controlled the output of its writers, but um, I don't know if he ever saw the movie, if Thomas Merton ever knew about the movie, but that was the result of the letter that uh, was intercepted by the CIA. Were there FBI files? Well, yes, indeed. The FBI was probably the, the richest source of information about Thomas Merton. There were files and files and more files uh, involving Merton and especially the anti-war effort, including this. He was counseling a um, selective service candidate named um, Joseph T. Malloy. And he wrote a letter which then got copied and sent in to the FBI because Thomas Merton wrote, as a spiritual advisor, I've been consulted by Joseph Malloy, who is seeking to follow his conscience in opposition to war. I believe he has every right to do so, and also believe that his rights are being denied him. Consequently, doing my simple duty as a priest, I have given him encouragement and support in his fight for his right. I would like to make clear that such support is a religious matter, 
and is not to be construed as an illegal act, nor is it political. It is essential for the preservation of American democratic values that the rights of conscience be respected even, indeed, especially in matters involving violence and war. There, were other, there was other correspondence that Merton had with federal government officials. One was Nicholas Katzenbach, who was in the, um, the Attorney General's office. Another, he actually wrote to President Johnson about the war, but I didn't find that in the FBI file that I received. Also, the FBI would also keep things like this from Catholic Concerned Citizens, postmark Louisville, Kentucky, 1968, addressed to anybody concerned, director, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Washington, DC. Of course, these were the days of J. Edgar Hoover. They, the FBI sent me this. It was a list of four people, but since I only asked about Merton, that's the only uh, part of the letter they allowed me to see. And it said in part this, um, listed below are a few of the main reasons why a closer look should be taken at questionable activity within the Roman Catholic Church of Louisville and Kentucky. Number one on this person's list was Father Lewis Merton, Thomas Merton, priest, writer, poet, monk, and admitted ex-communist. Remember what I showed you earlier? A card-holding member, not that I could find, now in residence at Trappist, Kentucky, is openly aiding objectors to our present selective service system. This man's past would indicate that he is of an undesirable element and should be watched closely. He is a dangerous radical and should be considered the number one target of your committee. And it went on, somebody up there, please take a good hard look at this unholy alliance and give them transportation elsewhere. Ask any Catholic in Louisville or Kentucky for that matter, signed Catholic Concerned Citizens. Did this represent a group? Did this represent one person? Um, I always like anonymous letters like that. But the FBI thought enough of it to keep it. Let's talk about Merton's final journey now. This is a copy of his passport application for that final trip that he took to the Far East. It was filed July 12th, 1968 for a planned departure, he said in there, of November or so, 1968. But his actual departure from uh, Gethsemane, not necessarily traveling overseas, but leaving September 11th, 1968. He planned to leave the country from San Francisco, but he left sort of a caveat there, perhaps, on Pan Am Airlines, perhaps. Approximate date of departure, October or November of 68. Uh, religious education was what was planned. He planned to visit, he said, Indonesia, Japan, Thailand. He did visit Thailand. He did visit Singapore for at least a couple of days where he stayed at the Raffles Hotel. Departed by air. And I thought this was interesting. Please indicate whether you expect to take another trip abroad. And he ticked yes. Of course, he had been fighting to take longer trips or trips period outside the, uh, the walls at uh, Gethsemane. And he, so he had that plan in, uh, in the back of his mind. Proposed length of stay unknown permanent residence, and then you see in the event of death or accident to contact his abbot, uh, Reverend Flavian Burns. Also, I found in this letter, or in the FBI's copy, was this letter that was sent by Brother Lawrence Gannon of Gethsemane, requesting that Merton's trip remain confidential because he was a rather well-known writer. And quote, if the public should hear of his trip, it would entail untold difficulties, both for him and for us. And it was signed by Brother Lawrence Gannon, as I mentioned. Also, uh, Thomas Merton managed to work out a, uh, an agreement that there would be no press interviews. This is privately within the, the Abbey or television coverage. He, they didn't want any publicity. And he planned to return roughly January 1969. The, the idea of no television appearance was um, sort of turned upside down when Dutch television and Italian television turned up at a conference that he was addressing in uh, outside Bangkok, Thailand. And ironically, his appearance here, his last appearance in front of any group on earth was filmed. 
And this is what part of it, the end of it, looked like. So I will conclude on that note. I believe the plan is to have all the questions for this morning's conferences this evening at the panel. So I will disappear from view and we can all have a Coke or something. Thank you very much. We were living in bungalows, uh, two-story bungalows, on this property owned by the Red Cross. Apparently, one of the, the monks wanted to get the key to the bungalow. Merton kept the keys. because When he knocked to, to get the key, he got no response. He was able to look in, actually, and see that, that the body was there. So he called the others living in the same building. They broke in and found the body. The floor was a terrazzo floor. Uh, the door to his shower was open, and the light there was on. When I arrived, which was a few minutes after that, they had already pulled out the plug of the fan that was over the body. The abbot who pulled it out, Abbot Haas, got a slight shock, but not enough to throw him from that fan. He told me the fan was on the body. There was a box where you could change the velocity of the fan. And that box was right here on the body, on the lower abdomen, above the shorts. It wasn't touching the shorts. Anne Merton died, as you heard, in his room. He appeared on the front page of the New York Times this way. And toward the bottom, it's kind of hard to read, but this is what I was able to, uh, to get out. Merton was found in his room at 4 p.m., badly burned by a shock. He had apparently received from a standing fan, electrical fan, that toppled over on him. The cause of death was officially listed as heart failure. Conspiracy theories surfaced almost immediately and continued to resurface, including the book that I mentioned earlier that claims really that the CIA was behind Thomas Merton's death. In fact, there's a full chapter in this book called The Press in Full Cover-Up Mode. I decided to turn to some uh, expert advice here, taking a look at what may have happened, if anything, untoward happened to Thomas Merton or illegal. So I turned to somebody who had experience in covering the CIA, somebody who would follow the facts, somebody who showed courage in his own coverage, which you don't always see, somebody who would pursue a story that all others would bypass. And it was the person who broke the story of the My Lai Massacre. For those of you too young to remember, this happened in 1968 during the Vietnam War. Orders were given that this was a stronghold for the NLF, the National Liberation Front. And so US troops mass massacred 500 women, children, and a lot of old men this story was covered up for about a year until a journalist decided to look into it more, and it was Seymour Hirsch. He is the one who exposed the My Lai massacre, but he did more than that. He also exposed something called Operation Chaos, which was a CIA operation that was against anti-war forces and other dissidents during the Nixon years. And so I wrote to Seymour Hirsch, asking him, by any chance, did you come across anything in any of your research about Merton? Did you come across Merton's name in your research? Do you know of anyone retired from the CIA who could confirm or deny US government involvement in Thomas Merton's death? It was a, a long shot um, and he responded. He said, Mr. Griff, I've been traveling and meant to write to you earlier. I know nothing of the death of Reverend Merton, though given his views on the Vietnam War, I agree with your instinct or hunch that he may have been looked at, not sure the word targeted, by Operation Chaos, the one I just told you about. One frustration is the fact that a great many of the Chaos files were destroyed long before I got into the story. Said, I could never establish that Chaos was also involved in the targeted assassination of American citizens, though, of course, there is much that we will never know about this. So that's from Seymour Hirsch, who was one of the prime investigative reporters of his time. So 
What do we make of the charges that came in this book in 2018, The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton? Um, if you Google this, you'll find lots of conspiracy theories, lots of sites that repeat what's on one site, and then it gets this um, sort of never-ending loop of, um, of information. So I decided to turn to somebody who, uh, Michael W. Higgins. He wrote a really, I thought, well-balanced review of this book. And to give you a, a brief introduction, he's a former, another former president of the International Thomas Merton Society. Uh, he is the official biographer of Henry Nouwen, um, distinguished professor emeritus at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut, and senior fellow at Massey College at University of Toronto. And just a personal aside, I think he is delightfully brilliant. If you have ever had the chance to meet uh, Michael Higgins, to talk with him even for a short while, he is absolutely delightful and his brilliance is unending. He's very, very quick. He's, he's a great storyteller. He's just a great guy. So I decided to take a look at what he thought of that book. And here is part of what he wrote. He said, Turley and Martin, the two authors, have painstakingly assembled items that support their argument and that they are to be commended for providing data hitherto inaccessible to the public. And they did do that. They did turn up stuff that I hadn't seen before. But they have crafted, in the end, a thesis that is both impossible and improbable. But more important still, unpersuasive. By ascribing motives behind the actions, foibles, and fumbles of many of the principal players, like John Howard Griffin, who was going to write the biography of, of Thomas Merton and then got ill and had to drop the project, uh, Griffin is dead. Michael Mott, who wrote the authorized biography, The Seven Mountains of Thomas Merton, who was ailing at the time this book came out, Brother Patrick Hart, who was also ailing at the time this came out, and Flavian Burns, the, the abbot who was long dead by this point. The motives that are insidious, if not pernicious, the Turley-Martin team profoundly weaken their argument. That was in the Merton Annual, Volume 32 in 2019. Um, so was Washington watching Merton? Yes, no, yes and no up for you to decide. And that's what I have. Alan, take it away. Well, that was that <clears throat> that was fascinating fun. Um, probably like everybody else. Fascinating fun, probably like everybody else. We wish you had gone on and on. So maybe there's a part three that's uh, in about a year out. <laughs> so first thing I was thinking about as as you were uh, commencing was uh, it, it's a testimony to the ITMS that we have people like you in there with interests and willingness to do things that would never have occurred to most of us. It's like, I'm not even sure I ever thought about that. And uh, to watch, watch you and, and just to see the kind of work that you did uh, to uncover that kind of stuff. I can't imagine writing FBI, CIA, or Seymour Hearst and even getting a response. So Maybe the first two would, since they're supposed to. But anyway, kudos to you and and really to ITMS that that keeps bringing in really fascinating people with uh, angles that never would have occurred to probably most of us. Uh, my first question would be: So we we watched you do all this work, impressed by it. What surprised you in the process, or now that you've brought us to this place? What surprised you in this in this work? I think one of the things was the fact that the CIA had been opening his mail. Uh, I, I, I figured that the FBI would have been keeping an eye on Merton because he was so active in the anti-war movement. Um, but the fact that they would open his mail really surprised me. Um, one thing that also sort of distressed me in a way was reading the book and reading how people who I knew personally, like Brother uh, Patrick Hart, were just ripped apart in this book, and I thought, I don't recognize the person these authors are, are talking about. Granted, I think perhaps the, the idea of Merton's death was such a shock, though some monks um, thought that they probably would never see Merton return to Gethsemane again, uh, that 
it was such a shock that a lot of questions that now, you know, 40, 50 years later, we'd go, well, you know, they should have done that. But at the time, I'm sure the thing was, uh, the primary concern was to get Merton back home to bury him. And the idea of everything happening on the other side of the world, there was a war going on at the time. Merton's body had to be brought back in a U.S. military jet. Um, uh, maybe, maybe a lot of things were not done by the book, but um, I didn't see enough evidence pieced together to say, aha, you know, this is definitely what happened. There's a lot of conjecture, but I didn't see any evidence, hard evidence that would convince me otherwise that it wasn't an accident. Uh, having said that, do you think what you shared with us tonight, um, is that the end of your interest? Does that close the story or is there more to come and there's a part three and um, can you give us a hint of what might be looked at there? You know, I never thought there'd be a part two <laughs> until uh, Judy Collins came up with the song. And then, of course, the book came out before that. Um, the, the, the tough part is the farther away we get from 1968, you know, records get lost, people die, memories fade. It's harder and harder to be definitive and I think, you know, perhaps the, the people, the, the monks who live at Gethsemane are like, you just leave him alone. He, the poor man died. He's back, you know, home again. Let's just, you know, move on. Think about the wonderful things he wrote rather than the, the manner in which he died. Um, so, I mean, I would, if there's something else out there, I'd love to pursue it. Um, but, you know, it gets harder and harder as time moves on. Well, you've been reading Merton for, for quite a while, and, and you're still doing this. Um, how has this work shaped your perspective on, on Merton and reading Merton? I was, I was always fascinated by Merton, especially I read him in Boston College, as I mentioned, senior year in a, a Zen class. That was my introduction to it. Love it. It wasn't a, a Catholic theology class. It was Zen, Buddhism. And I was fascinated because I thought he was writing to me. And I think a lot of people who have read Merton have that same experience that he's, he's writing personally to me. Um, and that is the, the sort of hook that kept me going on, uh, in terms of, of Thomas Merton. And then I, I quickly realized that when I would go to, to general meetings of the ITMS, I was surrounded by these brilliant people who were theologians and uh, had firsthand, you know, access to Merton. Bob Giroux, for example, was at one of the, the first meetings of the ITMS at Bellarmine. And, you know, to meet these people, I thought, I want to do something too. I want to do something in terms of research into Thomas Merton, but I don't have those chops. But I do have this particular skill that maybe I can put to use and maybe help sort of the corpus of, of what we know about uh, Thomas Merton's life. So I think I would encourage I would use this to encourage people who think, well, I'd really like to do more, but it's like everybody has a gift. You know, maybe you can use part of that gift to add to the, the font of knowledge that we have about Thomas Merton. So I think that's what encouraged it. It gave me a chance to sort of step out of my comfort zone and do something different that, believe me, this is not a story that I, I did on television. This is a story I did basically, I think, for me. Yeah, well, I think we just got a nice little snippet for PR for ITMS now. We'll have to uh, slip that out. Um, got a couple questions I want to follow up from, from our audience, which is always nice. And I'm going to preface it by I, I'm currently doing a, a, a little series on spirituality for an ecumenical group here in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And I have one uh, retired physician in the group who actually was a very early graduate of Bellarmine. Mm. Um, which surprised me. I did. I, I only met this guy, um, and he said, "I saw, I saw, I, I saw Merton. I met him once." And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah, I saw him in the library, and I thought he was the janitor." <laughs> 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 I love that story. And we've got a similar one from uh, Mary Somerville. She says, "Patrick Hart, brother Patrick Hart, told me uh, Merton was a klutz." We couldn't let him loose on a piece of machinery, so we weren't surprised at his death from a fan. 
Patrick didn't support conspiracy theories. Would you agree? I would agree a thousand percent. Yes, I think that's that's certainly true. And it, there, he had no reason to lie. You know, Brother Patrick knew, even though he was secretary, only for that snippet of the end of, of Merton's life, he knew Merton pretty well. He, in fact, I'll share a story that he told me. He told that, um, he said, Sister Therese Lentfor came up and sat on the steps of Merton's hermitage after uh, she learned that he had died and said, basically, we kept her alive with beer and sandwiches. <laughs> and it was just such a wonderful story that just stuck with me. And I think when we get all of these little pieces of, of the puzzle together, it really helps fill out everything. But I think, yes, I think the, the way the book portrayed you know, Brother Patrick, it was just, it was like that. I, I didn't recognize that person at all. Not at all. Yeah, it's a janitor. What do you mean? <laughs> That's right. Uh, our friend Dan Horn has a question. Um, as a longtime professional journalist, uh, do you have any insight or thoughts about why conspiracy theories tend to be so common in every age, including today? Well, yellow journalism has always been popular. It sells either newspapers or now it gets clicks. Um, and people are, are they, they love to be sort of horrified and like shocked. And it's like, that's why people watch, and that's one concern, people watch The Crown, for example, younger people to think that's the history of the British royal family, and it's not. And the same thing, they go, oh, look at this awful thing that happened to this poor monk. It's like, but it probably didn't happen that way. He was probably, as, as we heard from Mary Somerville and, and Brother Patrick Hart, that he was a klutz, that he couldn't drive. He would run over stumps on the, on the grounds in Gethsemane. And that's more like the truth here, but people, they like to be entertained. Yeah. And I think they've always liked to be entertained in some sort of conspiracy mystery. Uh, you know, it sells books. Yes, it does. Good. And uh, from one ITMS president to another, Chris Pramuk says, the business with Pasternak was fascinating, if not surprising to me. Anything more you learned about their surveillance of their, co the surveillance of their correspondence? That was the only instance that they released to me. I don't know, maybe there were others. They claim that was the only thing in the CIA files. Maybe years later, go back and maybe there are other things that have suddenly turned up. But uh, I, wish, I wish I had known if that actually reached uh, Boris Pasternak and if there had been a response to that. But, you know, it was back in those days, it was very difficult to get mail to and from the the USSR and the United States. So, you know, it was it was pretty much a, you know, flip a coin, hope hope it gets through. Yeah. Aaron Brown is asking a question. Do you think that enough time has passed since your initial FOIA requests that new Merton related documents may be declassified and available now? That's a really really good question. It's it's very possible. It, I have done some uh, FOI research and found out that it's getting even more difficult to get things out of the federal government. It was easier when that was first passed, but it's getting more and more difficult. But it's certainly worth perhaps another try to see. Um, now, the, for example, sort of an aside, I had uh, applied to the FBI. They denied some things. I appealed, and then they turned around and released things, and I couldn't see a reason why they had denied stuff in the first place, but it may be worth revisiting it. Yeah, just a different different guy got it, right? That could be. Yeah. So uh, are there other government agencies that you could imagine being approached? You've, you've certainly gone after the obvious ones to me. Are there other ones that you could imagine might have something on Merton? Maybe like the NSA, for example, um, different military intelligence. Um, like I said, it's very difficult to, you don't have a clearinghouse for all this information. You know, maybe NSA, if they would admit it. Um, but, but then again, would they admit it, even if they did? And that spawns another conspiracy theory right off the bat. But when I think about Thomas Merton, and it just goes back to what Mary Somerville said and Brother Patrick, that he was klutzy. I can imagine him, you know, stepping on like a wet, like a terrazzo floor, 
losing his balance, grabbing for the first thing he saw, which unfortunately happened to be a, a, a floor fan that was plugged in. And, um, and unfortunately, that, that was the, the end of him in, in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty dramatic. Um, here's a kudo to you. Uh, Mary Raymond says, as an attorney, you had remarkable response, especially from those federal organizations. So kudos that you were able to uh, ferret out things that <clears throat> uh, she might have thought you wouldn't get. So thank uh, you. I don't know whether it's because you're a journalist, a handsome guy, a real sleuth. I, you're you're really good. Um, Liza Ann Acosta has an interesting question. It's really about the Turley uh, book. Probably many of us don't know that book. Um, could you say more about what the two authors uh, said about Patrick Hart and others? Uh, and then she got an interesting question. Is that book still worth reading? Now that we get your uh, cliff notes tonight. Let me be honest with you. Um, I read it for the first time and I got so infuriated by it, I threw it away. Hmm. I then, in preparation for this, I had to buy it again. <laughs> um, I'm sure the authors really loved me for that. But I also found it very interesting that this wasn't picked up by a major publishing house. This, uh, from all I can tell, was self-published. And one of the first pages, they started talking about Vince Foster, the case of the, uh, the attorney who worked for the Clintons, and there was Whitewater, and there was talk that, hey, you know, they was, was murdered and all that. When, when they started off talking about Vince Foster, I was immediately, my antennae went up, and I was like, this is really suspicious. And the more they went through it, the more I, I had doubts. So... Um, I think that played a big part in, in that. So if you want to spend, I, I don't know, it was $20 or so, you know, feel free and maybe, maybe you'll get angry. Maybe you'll see something that, that you hadn't seen before. Um, certainly some of the eyewitness accounts varied, but that, again, that's not unusual. Uh, eyewitness reports are typically not that trustworthy. You know, you have five people seeing one thing, they're all going to tell you different things. Um, so they're not, it's not that ironclad, you know, truth with a capital T that you're looking for. Yeah, that's why I used the word perspective earlier. <laughs> There's a difference. <laughs> uh, Maria Esther Moro Garcia has an interesting question. Do you think the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy in 68 contribute to the conspiracy theory? Oh, I think that's absolutely the, the case because it, you start looking at all that and it, John F. Kennedy in 1963, and you just go down through, through the list, you think, is this ever going to end? And it would be plausible looking at the string of assassinations that had happened before that maybe Merton was on. I don't know if Merton ranked that high that the federal government would want to bump him off. Um, but you know, again, that, that's why conspiracy theories are there, because people are asking lots of questions. And unfortunately, sometimes the, the government reveals everything it knows, maybe. But maybe maybe there's, as, as Aaron Brown mentioned earlier, that uh, maybe there's other stuff that's out there now that they didn't reveal before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask what can be our last question, and we'll throw it to Teresa. I'm hoping you'll spend some time on this one. Uh, as a journalist... If you could have interviewed Merton sometime in 68 before he uh, died, what are the kinds of things you would like to have known? What, what kinds of questions, what would you be going after if you were able to interview Thomas Merton in 68? Knowing what I know now, I would want to know how his um, feelings on love changed, knowing about S. Um, I mentioned to, uh, in fact, I mentioned to Bob Daggy years and years ago that somebody, I was thinking hopefully it would be me, um, would be able to interview S, even if it was to be held until after she died, uh, to find out more about Merton and love and how that was such a key moment to me in his life that he had had problems dealing with with his emotions related to women up until that point. 
And then all of a sudden, it seemed to open up. It was a, a Zen moment. And I would have loved to find out more about that. Of course, that only came out years and years later. So in a perfect world, that's what I would have asked Thomas Merton about. But also how he managed to stay in touch with the world. And he admits he didn't really read newspapers or watch TV or didn't, certainly didn't go to the movies, but how he was able to be such a, a astute social critic just by the things that his friends were basically sending him. He, and he didn't have access to uh, mass media as we think of it now, but yet he was such a good social critic how is he able to do that? That would have fascinated me, those two. Cool. Teresa. There we go, thank you. Um, I just wanted to thank Bob Grip for bringing your gifts to this fascinating topic. And uh, just a little comment on the last point that you were making about how Merton seemed to keep in touch with so many things. For a while, I was the director of the Merton Center at Bellarmine. And uh, one of the first days I was there, a painter, a guy who was painting the uh, the walls, came into my office and he said that he once met Thomas Merton. In fact, he went to confession to him at Gethsemane. Uh, he, when he was a student, they would bus all of these Catholic schoolboys out to Gethsemane for retreats. And he went to confession to Merton. And, and he said, and do you know what Merton said to me? And I'm waiting there with bated breath. And he said, Merton said, is the bus strike still on in Louisville? So one of the ways he got his information was just through the confessional. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, um, I want to thank you very much for just this fascinating uh, uh, topic that you brought to light this evening. Uh, and Alan Culp for, again, doing such a wonderful job with the uh, moderating the questions. Uh, Dan Horan and the Spirituality Center at St. Mary's provide the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. So thank you, Dan. And uh, Mark Mead makes them available to us as podcasts. Uh, I want to also thank all of you for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to support Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for the next month's webinar when theologian Sister Mary Frolic will speak on Merton as disciple and reinterpreter of St. John of the Cross. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you next month. And Bob, if you will just stay online for a little while, please, as the others depart. Thank you. <laughs>